Is your hair falling flat? Can't do a thing with it. Has it lost its luster? Do you want to take your hair back in time and give it some style and class? Then now, it is time to go to thehartmancompany.com. What was that? Thehartmancompany.com. Hartman's Golden Age products have an all-natural hair cream that will give your hair the body and clean, healthy look you want. But I'm not into all that natural stuff. I want something more old school, like they had back in the day. Not to worry, my friends. Hartman's Golden Age Products has heard your pleas. You want an old-fashioned pomade? Hartman's Golden Age Products has teamed up with One Round Jack to bring you One Round Jack Pomade. It emulates the classic pomades of yesteryear, and it's so easy to use. You rub a little in your palm, blend it through your hair, comb and style. It doesn't get any better. What's more is they carry gift boxes year-round. That means birthdays, Christmases, anniversaries, or just a thank you to a friend. I give Hartman's to my friends all the time. I can tell you firsthand that I have the best-looking friends around, and they get all the girls. And their girls have the guys that their friends swoon over. So remember, go to thehartmancompany.com. That's Hartman with two N's. Put in the code word GANGSTER and get 10% off the cost of your order. That's thehartmancompany.com. Warning. The show is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. Welcome to the History of Organized Crime. I'm your host, Michael Vista. This episode, Unlucky, the Yakuza. Now, before we dive in, a big thank you goes out to the History of Japan podcast and its owner-operator, Isaac Meyer. He didn't help us directly at all. We don't even know if he is aware of our existence. Regardless, Mr. Meyer did two episodes on the Yakuza. He covered in quick detail their history, but more importantly, we now know how to pronounce words we had absolutely no idea how to say. If you're interested in Japanese history, Mr. Meyer seems to cover the subject with great knowledge and a fine, dry wit. You can find his page at isaacmeyer.net. Tell him the Podfather sent you. On another note, we were split as to make two short episodes or one long one. I pushed for two and lost the argument to our consigliere, who was seemingly in a huff over it. So relax, we have a lot of information to get to. Now on with the show. In the year 1603, the world was changing. Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen of England, ruler of the British Empire, had aged and fell into a strong state of depression. In her 44-year rule, she had brought England from a weak kingdom, caught between the clutches of far more powerful adversaries in France and Spain, to a new world power. But now, all of her friends and confidants had passed away, or were well on their way out. She passed away in the early hours of March 24th. She would be interred with her sister and former queen, Mary I. James VI of Scotland became James I of England, bringing the two crowns together. Her death technically ended the Tudor line. Elsewhere, Mehmed III of the Ottoman Empire passed, and his son ascended to the throne. Ahmed I had little luck in the various military campaigns he inherited from his father. Unlike his father, who had 19 brothers and half-brothers executed to secure his place on the throne, Ahmed did not execute his rivals for the seat, the first not to commit fratricide in their ascension to the throne. While there was loss to the empire in terms of land, he had held the most prominent parts together. 
The Blue Mosque, also known as the Mosque of Ahmed, was one of two major mosques built under his supervision and to which he is buried. He kept the title Kaiser e Rum to go along with Sultan, which means Caesar of Rome, which technically was true since Istanbul, the capital, was the head of the Eastern Roman Empire, formerly known as Constantinople. Istanbul was Constantinople, now it's Istanbul, now Constantinople, been a long time gone, Constantinople, now it's church delight, on a moonlit night. In Japan of that year, the Azuchi Momoyama phase ended and began what historians term the Edo period. Since the fall of the Ashikaga Shogunate, which was a shogunate name only, which ended the Sengoku period and the feudal system, the land of the rising sun had been at war with one another. Tokugawa Iyasu became the most powerful man of the island nations. He was named Shogun by the 107th Emperor Goyuzai. Now, I know some of you are saying, isn't the emperor, you know, the emperor? Well, yes, he is in fact the emperor. But their powers had been in recession for many, many decades. And even if an emperor had had the gumption to try and attain actual power, they were usually and quickly put in their place, if not replaced with one of their offspring. During the next 200 plus years, they will simply be pawns under the shoguns of the Tokugawa clan. One of the biggest issues that come up when discussing the origins of the Yakuza is some have linked them, or at least tried to make a connection, between them and a group of gangs retroactively known as the Kabuki Mono, or the Crazy Ones. Not to stray too far off the path, but a style of Japanese theater known as Kabuki gets twisted into the theatrical with the Kabuki Mono. But they are not the same thing, and those in the theater realm have taken pains over the years to differentiate themselves from them, while also doing plays about them. When Tokugawa Iyasu became shogun after decades of civil strife, there were no more enemy armies to defeat. The heads of every clan groveled before him and acknowledged his might while ignoring his girth. One of the issues he had to deal with was one that Augustus Caesar had when he was finally unrivaled, and that was there were too many soldiers in a nation that needed far fewer of them, lest they band together and challenge the rule of the shogun and his family. Unlike Augustus, he didn't have a treasure trove or land to give to his men, being forced into a kind of a retirement. Coupled with this was a caste system that was still in place, along with the traditional practice of primogenitor. So this left many second, third, and fourth sons of samurai with absolutely nothing to do and nowhere to go. Moving from one class to another was unheard of and illegal. Some were able to find jobs guarding towns or monasteries, Many became bandits or ronin. Ronin were samurai without masters and few ways to earn a living, which led to becoming bandits much of the time. Then there were those who became the Kabuki Mono. These were loosely associated gangs, which I would put more in line with punk rockers of the 1970s and 80s, who so delighted in flaunting the societal norms in dress and manner that they couldn't find work, so therefore were kept on the British dole or welfare rolls. In modern Japan, they more resemble the motorcycle street gangs, which tend to be flamboyant rather than, say, the Hells Angels or the Mongols Motorcycle Clubs, or MCs for short. These modern Japanese MCs tend to ride what are referred to as rice rockets, or the less racist term, but just as savory, crotch rockets. Think Fast and the Furious, but with high-performance motorcycles, with flashy paint jobs, racing up and down narrow streets in the middle of the night, 
causing a ruckus while you try to get some sleep before work tomorrow. You know, assholes. Regardless, these kabuki mono, who by the way were not all of the samurai class, dressed in flashy kimonos, particularly favored were the much more colorful women's kimonos. They wore portions of European clothing, colored their hair, harassed the peasants, drank, started fights, and essentially made a nuisance of themselves, and in modern terms, well, they were hooligans. The hooligans are loose, the hooligans are loose. <laughs> what if they become ruffians? The problem for them came in the form that the Tokugawa government was built on top of an extremely rigid system, with strong ties to the philosophies of Confucianism, which channeled a much more introspective contemplations as opposed to the outlandish behavior chosen by these young, directionless upstarts. In some cases, it was handled with a level of severity that would boggle the minds of most first-world dwellers today. In 1612, for example, the lords of Kaga, by order of the daimyo, that's a feudal chief, of Kanazawa Castle, rounded up 66 men who were considered kabuki mono and executed them. If they were of the samurai class, they had the option of seppuku, or ritual suicide. Those not of the class were either hanged or crucified. Other daimyos went to great length to protect the kabuki mono. Some, in fact, even took after them in dress. They faded out near the end of the 1600s. Their disappearance was accelerated by 200 having been rounded up and their leaders executed in 1686. Another collective of people, known as the Machiako, are also thought to have been of the origin of the modern-day Yakuza. These were people, sometimes samurai, usually the town tough guy, whose job it was to protect the folks from the various bandits and criminals. They too have a colorful history, though most of it has been embellished with heroic and romantic images from the Edo periods, poetry, and theater. One example is of a student who breaks his vow of chastity to his master. His shame is so great, he cuts off one of his arms as punishment and swears to protect the innocent. From then on, he wanders throughout Tokyo like Dirty Harry Callahan dispensing justice. No, it wasn't me. It was the one-armed man. Regardless, the historical attachments to these two kinds of people are at best tenuous, if not to the point of absurd. Not that the modern Yankees do not use these exaggerated images or attachments for their own use. The actual origins that make up the Yakuza are found in two distinct groups, both on the fringe of societal acceptance and, at best, lightly governed by the establishment of the shogunate. Yakuza, which translates as 8-9-3, is a gambling term in a card game called Ochikobu. The goal is similar to Baccarat, the preferred game of James Bond, which doesn't mean a thing to me since I have absolutely no idea how to play either game. Our understanding is 893 is the worst possible hand, and phonetically it is pronounced Ya-Ku-Sa. Card gaming came to Japan in the mid-1500s from Portuguese traders during Portugal's Asian expansion. Dice, which was and is popular with the Japanese, suddenly had company in the gambling houses of the day. The government cracked down and outlawed gambling, which set up a vice racket on the outskirts of the law in a society where gambling is very popular in every strata of the caste system. The people who ran these illegal games were known as bukutu. They would set up games on busy roads or towns, 
often hiring the local matriarcho or semi-chivalrous ronin to protect their game from thieves and gangs. Of humorous note is the popular Japanese film character Zatoichi, who is a blind masseuse who wanders the land and fights for justice with his katana, or samurai sword, hidden inside his walking stick, who made more of a living from these games, often breaking the house or to the point they would try to get rid of him and, more often than not, get hurt trying to do so. Of course, in one of the most racist and homogenous societies in history, European playing cards were outlawed first, so pioneering gamblers would make their own in a much more traditional Japanese fashion. These style of house cards are known as Hanafudo, and they're still popular today. In fact, the most well-known company who ever made these cards, and still does, was started in 1889 by Fusihiro Yamachi. That company is known today worldwide as Nintendo. In two displays that have carried over from the Bakutu gangs to the Yakuza is the famous tattoos that are so elaborate that they are probably the most recognizable aspect of the Yakuza next to the missing digits of fingers. The tattoos, known as Erozumi, are nothing like we have in the modern West. This is a long, painful process that can take years to complete and is done by hand using wooden sticks, metal needles, silk thread, and a specialized ink. These tattoos would be on display wherever the Bakutu were hosting games because the dealers would be without much more than a loincloth. Therefore, they could show their importance to their respective gangs. The missing fingers, called Yubitsumi, is known as a punishment or a form of repayment. Like illegal gamblers everywhere, people tend to borrow money they don't have, so they can keep gambling. However, when the debt can't be repaid, there was something one could do, which is remove the joint from a little finger as an abject apology to the Bukutu gang, who was owed money. This didn't necessarily pay the debt, but it certainly bought the wayward gambler more time to garner funds. Normally, the finger was delivered to the kumiko, or the gang leader. Sometimes it was even performed in front of him, to ensure that they had not been duped. The most famous of these bakutu has got to be Kunisada Chuji, also known as the Noble Gambler. Kunisada's legend is a variation on a Robin Hood stories. He was outside the law, fighting corrupt magistrates, revenging the downtrodden at the expense of the rich. There are near a dozen movies about his alleged exploits, and the country of Japan had a recasting of him placed on one of their stamps in 1999. What we do know is he was a powerful gambler who had come to the rescue of the region during a famine, bringing food and money. Which sounds kind of cool, but in reality, what that is really saying is he was the head of a powerful group of Bakutu. He was the boss that ran multiple games in that province. He was a gang leader, in fact, that had eluded authorities and, because his heritage was samurai, were sure he thought himself above the law. Regardless, he fought off and killed multiple government authorities, but once caught, he was brought to justice in 1851, where he and a dozen of his men were executed by crucifixion. Crucifixion is normally relegated to the lower classes, but because his behavior was so vile, he was not allowed to commit the traditional seppuku. The government so feared his rescue that they had hundreds of soldiers surrounding the site this justice was carried out, and to ensure he died. 
They continually stabbed him with spears. He was decapitated afterwards and his head carried around the local village. His remains are located at a gravesite where he was executed in Isasaki, a township in the Gunma prefecture, which is located on Honshu, the largest island of Japan. Locals, particularly the ill, will go to his site and pray to him for alleviation of their maladies. Aside from the Bakutu, the other half of what makes up the modern Yakuza come from a group known as Takiya. These were traveling peddlers, usually made up of the lower caste system. They were also known as a place to hide out for people who were wanted by the law, since few of the higher classes wanted to deal with people of this ilk. Some sold food, others produced wares for sale that were of low quality. Some were mystics who told people's futures or sold talismans to ward off evil spirits, and some of the Takiya gangs even had their own bakutu with them. In addition, when they showed up near villages, shrines, monasteries, and towns, they would off-steal anything that was not nailed down and lure young people, usually wild-eyed teens, to a life not seen as being very Japanese, but certainly much more exciting than a life of fishing or harvesting rice. A modern equivalent might be carnies or vendors who travel to fairs, carnivals, or other shows throughout the world. But I think of them more like the Irish travelers or Europe's equivalent with the Roma gypsies. Like the travelers or the Roma gypsies, the Takiya are very clannish and extremely protective of their own. They run essentially a similar system as other structures of crime do throughout the world, which is a senior-junior system, which the Japanese call Senpai Kohai, or, in the case of organized crime, the godfather, the underboss, the capos, the soldiers. Their system is called Oyabon Koban, which literally means foster parent, foster child. As in Latin-based gangs, there is a deeper meaning to the relationship than you're the boss and I work for you. It is supposed to be a relationship of responsibility from one to another. The Oyabon is supposed to look out for you, handle minor authority issues, and supervise your progress. You're supposed to pay your dues, follow orders, and not make things difficult for him or your brothers within the organization. And, just as similar, it is usually a lifelong attachment to the group. That means severing ties or at least straining them with your real family. The Oyabon is the head of these groups, and every single clique within the Takeya Association is subject to his decisions. Small-level Oyabon will control a pack of these peddlers, where the larger ones might control many itinerant merchant groups. The Oyabon is charged with finding them a place to set up their stalls, provide security, and organize who was assigned where. All of his Koban had the responsibility of paying him from their sales at these ad hoc markets before they packed up and moved on to the next venue, lest they linger too long and have angry customers. Regardless, this sounds fairly legitimate, does it not? Not in Japanese governmental thinking. Takeya groups, which are essentially gangs based on self-preservation, were not regulated. For another thing, their tactics of sales were often considered unscrupulous and not the norm of a society built on Confucianism or traditional discipline. Because they were not outlawed, but since they were of the lowest of the fruit hanging on the trees, they were almost never hassled by the governmental authorities. In fact, it eventually became codified, more or less, by the order of the shogunate, simply because it was easier than getting their fingers dirty, Therefore, these gangs had some semblance of authority and recognition. 
That being said, fights and minor battles would erupt between opposing gangs looking to secure favorable areas around Shinto or Buddhist temples during the holidays, or select towns and overland crossroads during the harvest selling time. High traffic would also bring bandits who would wait until the end of a busy day while these traveling carnies of Japan were packing up before attacking, since everyone was tired and the money was in a small locale. If the gang of Takeya were particularly well organized by their Oyobun, they had protection from either local samurai or machiako until they left. But once they leave and are on the road, who protects them? Hence, greater organization is needed, which means having one's own protection all the time. Therefore, you form a racket. Based on what we found out and piecing together some of the tidbits, it seems the better Oyobans started packaging festivals, holidays, and other events along with their Takeya groups. The problem is there are independent groups who might underbid your services, garnering monies that will not go to you or the people who are sworn to you. So now you have to quash the competition or at least subvert their plans. Well, what's the best way to do this? Rob them. Send your hired swords to act as bandits. Rob these independents. Smash their wares and, a day or two later, while they're still trying to recover, have one of your envoys happen across them. Offer them a place in your organization, which will give them protection from these roaming bandits. He may even offer them a little money to get back on their feet, if they agree to join. So now, you've got another group under one umbrella. You gave them some of their own money back, and they're now going to pay you. As Oyabon, it is also your obligation to make sure no one else interfere with your Koban making a living. There are other Takeya associations who will do what you've done. So alliances are formed to assuage that line of thinking and keep the peace, which is all the government wants. Tranquility. As the Takeya and the Bakutu are doing their own thing, something happened in Japan and the Tokugawa shogunate that was most apocalyptic. They got unwanted, uninvited, and extremely threatening visitors. They garnered the attention of the United States. On the surface, it doesn't make any sense that the Americans are bothering a bunch of what are essentially backwater hicks in Japan, who were still in feudal mode. You see, the waters around Africa and Asia were pretty much under the thumb of the British, French, Dutch, Spanish, and Portuguese at this time, and America wanted to flex her naval might to enhance economic power. Hence, the President of the United States, Millard Fillmore, gave orders to the father of the steam navy, Commodore Matthew Perry, to get a trade treaty in place with Japan. Now why Japan? Because they'd been running essentially an isolationist policy since before Tokugawa Ieyasu garnered control of the imperial throne and was named Shogun. But this was more than that. Commodore Perry on his flagship, the USS Mississippi, which was leading other steamships known as the East India Squadron, visited ports of Madeira, which is just west of Gibraltar, Cape Town in South Africa, Sri Lanka, Singapore, Macau, and Hong Kong, not to mention many others. This was America letting all Europeans know that they weren't to be pushed around and an opening in the Asian trade markets needed to be forthcoming. In 1853, Perry chose to ignore the standard protocol, which stated if he wanted to go to Japan, there was only one port open to foreigners, and that was Nagasaki. Instead, Perry went to the coast, just off the capital of the Shogun in Edo, which is modern-day Tokyo. 
the Japanese officials knew right away that these ships were far superior to anything their Dutch friends, the Chinese or Korean traders had. Regardless, the Japanese envoys told him if he wanted to discuss any trade agreements, then the Americans needed to go to the official port of Nagasaki. Commodore Perry chose to turn his guns towards the city and open fire using only blank rounds, but we're sure it scared the bejesus out of the poor Japanese. He claimed it was to celebrate the 4th of July. However, they didn't get to Japan until the 8th of July. Eventually, an arrangement was made with these forceful devils with round eyes and pale skin, with Commodore Perry agreeing to return in a year for the answer on a treaty being offered. After putzing around Hong Kong and investigating Formosa, which is now Taiwan, Perry and his fleet returned to Japan six months early. What Perry was unaware of was the current shogun was ill and died shortly after Perry's departure, leaving a weak, ill son as the new shogun. However, it fell to the counselors for the new shogun to handle the issue with the Americans. Unfortunately, the man in charge was Abe Masahiro, who was not certain of his authority. So he conferred with the daimyos of Japan on their point of view. The daimyos hadn't been asked their opinion on anything in over 200 years. The smell of blood was in the water for the Tokugawa clan. Regardless, upon his return, Perry and the representatives of the shogunate made an agreement that opened Japan up for trade, including additional ports, the return of American prisoners, and a consulate. This was the beginning of the end of the shogunate. By 1867, the 15th and final shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinabu, resigned power to the imperial household under the Emperor Meiji. Yoshinabu was an intelligent man and had plans for a reformed government and military which frightened the daimyos who had been garnering power under a weakened shogunate. But with a revival as Yoshinobu planned, that wouldn't be possible. A rebellion that couldn't be stopped came even after he had given up his position. And multiple rebellions cropped up, most notably the Boshin War, between the pro-shogun samurai and their opposition led by the pro-imperial samurai. Some feared strong westernization was coming. Some wanted more westernization. Some just wanted to keep their samurai status, which was disappearing under the oligarchs that surrounded the emperor. Regardless, the emperor and his supporters finally quelled the infighting, and Japan marched from a backward, outdated nation into a modern one in under 40 years. The most famous of these rebellions was the Satsuma Rebellion, which was led by one of the more interesting and complex men, Saigo Takamori. Saigo was one of the few samurai who had served the Meiji Restoration, even though he had been disenfranchised by the breaking of the caste system by it. He was an ever-loyal servant to the emperor. He even led the imperial forces during the Boshin War. Yet, he felt the speed of westernization would extinguish that which was exclusively Japanese. He openly opposed the construction of railroads, while pushing for the modernization of the military. In addition, he was a proponent of war against Korea for not recognizing the emperor as the head of the Japanese government. Plus, he supported a new formation in the military called conscription, which was looked down upon by most of the now former samurai, whose belief it was to fight the wars and battles of Japan like their forefathers had done. Saigo Takamori believed it would help not only level the playing field for all Japanese, but help find those with gifts who had been snuffed out by the Tokugawa government. His beliefs could be found in the Dai Saigu Ukun, which is based on his writings when he was in exile. Regardless, by 1876, his rhetoric and somewhat aging viewpoints had gotten him marginalized by other leaders within the government. 
so he resigned and returned to his home of Kagoshima, southwest in the island of Kyushu, which led other disaffected of the samurai class to resign their positions, and they chose to follow him, though he was opting for semi-retirement as he opened a military academy. Anti-samurai leaders sent warships to not only retrieve military munitions, but to intimidate these upstarts into acknowledging they couldn't fight against the emperor. Students at the academy openly rebelled and stole everything they could from the government forces, which were being led by Kawamura Sumiyoshi, whose wife was the aunt of Saigo Takamori. Knowing that a fight was coming from the government forces, Saigo was forced out of his self-imposed retirement to lead the rebels of Kagoshima. Skipping over a siege and a couple of battles, the finale ended at the Battle of Shiroyama, where artillery and modern trench systems had been employed to eat away at what was left of the rebels, who were outnumbered 50 to 1, though some claim greater or lesser. Saigo's death has mixed stories, but no scholar on the planet Earth denies that it was Tom Cruise who ended his life through ritual seppuku at this last battle of the venerable samurai. If anyone says otherwise, call them a liar and never speak to them again. Regardless of this last battle and Saigo's downfall, he is called the last samurai and revered by many of the island nation to the point that his literary works are covered and studied to this day. He was pardoned posthumously by the Meiji government in 1889 and a statue was erected for him in Tokyo. Of course, some of you are wondering why we went into as much detail of this change in Japan and why even covers Saigo Takamori. Well, one of the most revered or reviled patriots of this new Japan was himself a former samurai who claimed to be a disciple or apostle, if you will, of the late Saigo Takamori, and his name was Toyama Mitsuru. Toyama Mitsuru, who participated in the Sega Rebellion, which was more of a small-scale riot that was easily put down, was the third of four sons from an unimportant samurai family. He had a basic village education, was a fine orator, but was a person of multiple meanings. I'm not suggesting the Jungian philosophy of the duality of man, more in line with the saying, the Japanese have three faces, the one you show to the world, the second you show only to your family and friends, and the one you keep to yourself. Toyama Mitsuru, who went to jail for the Sega Rebellion, while the leaders were executed, it was there that he gained access to people from all scales of society. Most importantly, he made contacts with both political prisoners, disaffected samurai, and more importantly, gangsters of both the Takiya and Bakutu lifestyles. Once free, he fell in with other leaders of samurai stock, some of whom were seemingly pushing for a much more liberal government, more in style with the French Revolution than, say, the Americans. Thankfully, more sound minds ruled the day. These liberal voices used the expressive eloquence of freedom of labor, property rights, and equality in a land where nearly everyone upheld the reverence of the emperor. These included Itagaki Taisuki, who founded Japan's first political party, the Freedom and People's Rights Movement, or the simplified version, the Freedom Party, who advocated for a true democracy, a decentralized taxation, and treaty reformations. As Toyama Mitsuru gained more clout within the party, he was able to bring his oratory skills to the forefront, calling for more civil rights for the common man, which of course made him popular with the crowds and politicians who were still trying to find stability in a quickly modernizing world with Western concepts that were far from Japanese. It was during this time that he also worked to form the goals of Jinyosha, 
or the Black Ocean Society. They too took after Saigo Takamori's principles of civil rights for the common man, but their heart was in military expansion in the Orient or Eastern Asia for the PC crowd. They secretly pushed to re-establish a new caste system, remove the yoke of Western influence, and spread Japanese influence in a pan-Asiatic power play, something akin to America's manifest destiny. Jinyosho was a collection of former samurai who had congregated within the shadows of the freedom and people's rights movement, which gave them a cover for their activities. It is similar to the evangelical movement in the Republican Party through the 1970s and 80s, and having just enough sway and votes to interfere with both party and congressional business, or the varying degrees of socialists who use the Democratic Party to push for their agenda, which reached new heights as recently as 2012. But where both those two groups of loud tub-thumpers seemingly have the people's best interest at heart, the Jinyosha was mostly concerned with the international perception of Japan as a power. Their grandiose statements about civil rights was more of a cover for their nefarious activities and plans for the future. It was here that Toyama Mitsuru, a self-proclaimed disciple of Saigo Takamori's work, thrived. First was to garner monies so as to support their various plans. Toyama Mitsuru used initial funding from members of the Jinyosha who came from wealth. It was with this money that he funneled it into schools to teach other sympathizers Russian and Chinese, as well as business transactions and foreign customs. Also, some of this money made its way to various factions of Takea and Bakutu. Toyama needed men with muscle and knowledge of how to use it, and who understood the not-so-subtle art of intimidation. Now, I hear some of you scratching your heads and saying, uh, these were mostly samurai. Didn't they know how to fight and intimidate people already? No, not really. Yes, some of them leaned on martial training for the extent of their lives, and almost all of them had martial training as youngsters. But 200 plus years of Tokugawa rule had robbed them of much of this ability. Many, though of the samurai class, were noted scholars, painters, studied calligraphy, and the arts of flower arranging. One shogun advocated for the civil treatment of canines and is referred to as the dog shogun. I swear, I'm not making that up. So Toyama, using his contacts from prison, hired these tough men, who had access to the seedier side of Japan, who tended towards the waterfronts, where there were a plethora of women, drugs, gambling, and sluggers available. By working with these groups, the Jinyosha indirectly and Toyama directly got low-tier gangsters involved in politics. With the first Sino-Japanese War that ended in 1895, Jinyosha was able to establish stronger contacts throughout East Asia. In and around Shanghai, Mitsuru helped establish the Hall of Pleasurable Delights, which was an import-export company that dabbled in beauty supplies and perfumes. But their real business was drugs, prostitution, and gambling. It is in establishments like these that tongues loosen and information is attained with mid- to high-level Chinese businessmen. Mitsuru, also involved on the Korean Peninsula, where his money and underworld contacts funneled weapons and training to radicals to destabilize the government. It is well established that this group's efforts led directly to the First Sino-Japanese War. Now to some of you, this may seem more like a slightly dirty group with an overall purpose of helping Japan keep its ascension going with militaristic expansion and nothing more. But the Jinyosha was also accused, both openly and secretly, 
of multiple attempted assassinations on Japanese political figures, usually moderates advocating for governmental efforts where the Jinyosha didn't want to go or with perceived enemies within the governmental organizations or political parties. While Toyomo Mitsuru might make claims of equality for all the people of Japan, he also would go on to use his growing power and wealth to have his allied gangs break strikes on behalf of his supporters in Jinyosha, so as to keep the money rolling in from these supporters. And it is here, right at this moment in time, when these gangs began collectively forming themselves into organized clans with suzerainty in their hometowns. These downtrodden gangsters, many from the former samurai class with aspirations but no access to power or money, began their rise into something more than just tough guys, pimps, and gamblers. They became the students that learned the ardent support of the emperor and nationalistic pride. Where the gangsters of America and Italy and Sicily tended to go to the left of the political discourse through their strong association of the Democratic Party, the Fasci, or unionization, these new right-leaning groups would form what we refer to today as the Yakuza. In our next episode, we will be turning our attention to Father Winter and... Mother Russia! As the Russian Revolution takes hold and the fallout between the Reds and the Whites takes place, a group of anti-communist citizens who have had their lives stolen by the government will begin what we refer to as the Voreve Zakone, or the Russian Mafia. We can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Please give us a review. We can be located at the History of Organized Crime on Facebook. You can contact us at michaelvista1970 at yahoo.com. We're sending a shout out to that scrumptious Scottish woman and best friend of Max. Jennifer, this is for you. Don't forget to stop by thehartmancompany.com and put Gangster with a capital G to garner 10% off your purchase. And remember, organized crime is only a crime because the government hates competition. Hey.